Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 22nd, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about the not-super-duper-exciting weeks-long prelude to what should be a super-duper-exciting Warriors-Cavs NBA Finals, although now it seems like the Celtics aren't totally dead, which is a little bit weird. Moving on, we'll be joined by Sean Singer to discuss the strange saga of Ennis Cantor, the basketball player for the Oklahoma City Thunder, who was detained over the weekend seemingly due to his opposition to Turkish dictator Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And finally, we'll be joined by economist Andy Schwartz, who's ready to unveil his plan to pay college athletes and destroy the NCAA model of enforced amateurism. It's interesting. I think you'll want to hear it. So don't throw your phone into a lake before we get to that part of the show. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. He's currently dunking his phone into a glass of water, ignoring my instructions. How dare you, Stefan? Hi, Josh. Welcome Uh, back. Thank you. And with us for a return engagement is our pal Jane Coaston of MTV News. Uh, She's not just of MTV News. She's a semi-deranged Michigan Wolverines fan. Hi, Jane. I mean, semi-deranged is a really relative term. I just uh, I just saw that Jim Hackett, our interim athletic director, just got hired as the head of Ford, I believe, based purely on getting Jim Harbaugh to go do something. <laughs> Maybe Jim Harbaugh That's not will deranged at all. Can you see Harbaugh on the assembly line? Motivating workers. It would be Taylorism taken up to an uncomfortable <laughs> level. <laughs> uh, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will have a prolonged fan fiction about Jim Harbaugh on the assembly line. And then after we're done with that, we're going to talk about U.S. soccer star Mallory Pugh's debut for the Washington Spirit and whether she'll pave the way for women athletes in soccer and other sports skipping college to turn pro. Sort of realized that pave the way was a cliche, but I just... I was already halfway through the sentence and didn't feel like you're already down that back. road. Already well down the road. 
Join Slate Plus for just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. I'll provide the cement truck for free. So the whole point of this first segment of our show was going to be to talk about how the Warriors and the Cavs were both 11-0 and in these playoffs, and that they were hopping and skipping happily towards their expected third straight NBA Finals matchup. But if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plan to defend Avery Bradley from three-point range on a Sunday night in Cleveland. God would not really know what you were talking about and would find that hilarious. After being down 21 points and after having lost game two by 44 on their home court, the Celtics somehow won game three on the road, 111-108, on a last-second three by Bradley, danced around the rim, fell in. And uh, LeBron James, who scored... 41, 41, 27, 32, 25, 41, 33, 35, 39, 35, 35, 38, and 30 in leading the Cavs to 13 straight playoff wins, finished with just 11. The 11 seems like the outlier there. I'm not feeling so great about the Celtics. It's hard to imagine this setback will change the story of these playoffs, but it is a reminder that there are no sure things in sports, except for Kelly Olenek's facial hair always being gross and LeBron James being mortal about 2% of the time. Um, The main takeaway for me, though, Jane, is that we're just so desperate and hungry for a competitive game in these playoffs. I had forgotten what it felt like for my heart to pound in the last seconds of an NBA game. So that was cool. I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny also because I think that it's interesting how people have been like, oh, this is, you know, this playoff series isn't good. And also the thing with Kawhi Leonard out, the Warriors Spurs series isn't very good. But also, like, what what do we want? I mean, I want to see Cavs Warriors part Trey. I am very excited about that. Like, last year's finals was probably the best seven-game series I've ever seen in any sport. And it's just, it's funny that, like, the fact that the Cavs, like we're mad at the Cavs for being really, really good, and the fact that Marcus Smart had an out of control game yesterday, and we're like, oh, this is great. Okay, yes, the Cavs blew a twenty-one point lead, but like they're probably still going to win this series, and that's okay. I'm okay with it. It's fine. I was actually weirdly bummed out that it was a competitive game last <laughs> night when it was twenty-one point. I mean, I was thinking, all right, this is done, and it, the narrative is safe. The idea here is we are about to see. Two of the best teams of recent vintage, possibly of all time in the case of the Warriors, play against each other in another finals to determine global supremacy. And that was cool. And I was sitting there thinking and taking notes, planning for this segment about how we get to see them at maximum rest, maximum efficiency, minimum injuries. We get to see the two best teams in the best possible shape and all the other games that have preceded it that have sucked we're a prelude anyway, so who really cares? Right. We want a we want a gauntlet, or maybe even a gantlet, depending on how you pronounce that. I think you guys are talking about a false choice here. I don't think even if the Spurs or the Celtics, or before the Spurs and Celtics, the Raptors and the Blazers, if they're at full strength and full health 
I don't think anyone who's rational believes that those teams would have beaten the Warriors or the Cavs. They would have provided more entertainment value Mm -hmm. for the NBA fan, Josh Levine, though. Right, but now we're at the point where we've foregone the idea of entertainment value, and we are so far looking ahead to the finals that whatever transpires in the last few games You're not here to talk about the past. You're not here to talk about the past. I guess I can respect that. But I feel like this playoffs makes the regular season actually worse in retrospect because I was so happy for the Warriors of 2015-2016 doing us as NBA fans the service of providing us a hugely compelling and fascinating and entertaining regular season. They were on a mission. It was an extremely entertaining mission to watch. This year, we got a lesser version of that with Russell Westbrook um, pursuing various triple-double related marks. And then you had the Cavs go 10 and 14 down the stretch, take the number two seed, be horrible at defense during that stretch, but pretty much all year. And then in these playoffs, prove that entirely irrelevant. And it just makes me (laughs) makes me wonder why was it that we even pretended to care uh, about this regular season or, or watch it with anything beyond a passing interest. Well, I also think that, you know, the problem, like the issue with the NBA playoffs is that, you you know, you've kind of got a narrative going. And I think that, you know, I want to see Cleveland and Golden State go against each other in the finals. That is the narrative that I am already on board for, and I admit that. And I think that, you know, the regular season, obviously, you know, it was interesting, it was important, but I also, at no, at no time was I like, you know, this is all going to go horribly wrong for the Cavs. Like, I feel as if that was the issue with having such a long, you know, you've got such a long season. Basketball, it's hard. Basketball is really hard. Mm-hmm. I feel as if every time, you know, watching so much of the NCAA tournament and watching so much of these playoffs, like watching a bunch of Wizards games, I'm like, man, this is hard. And you're not going to have, like, a great time all the time. And especially because I feel as if a lot of times, like, the Cavs' issues on defense were trebled by people talking about the Cavs' issues on defense. When sometimes it's like, oh, basketball is just hard. And then LeBron in the playoffs is like, oh, I'm really good at basketball. You're like, oh, okay. And so I think that, you know, I'm not really that kind of bound up in how the regular season went because I feel as if a lot of times when people, you know, People are like, oh, why is this so different? It's not really. I think 538 did a great piece a little earlier this year, I believe, talking about the fact that playoff LeBron and regular season LeBron are basically the same person. It just looks kind of different because how the people around him are responding. Um, but, I, you know, I, ju- I just want to get to the finals. If we could just do this, if we could just make this end, you know, if we could, you know, take this cup away from me and just move on. What these playoffs have exposed is how different the playoffs are to the regular season. And the Ringer had a a piece that I thought was pretty good about, very good actually, about what the differences actually are. And some of them are really obvious. No back-to-backs. You have at least a day day off, uh, travel day, rest day between games. Um, 
Both teams are on the same schedule. Fatigue, therefore, is much lower. You have more time to prepare and practice for your opponent. And the biggest one is because you see an opponent multiple times in a row, you can adjust very, very specifically. And the better teams on offense and defense, I mean, there's some advantages apparently that statistically um, bear on who does better in the playoffs. Teams with higher defensive efficiency ratings tend to exceed expectations. Teams with higher offensive efficiency ratings perform worse than expected. But in the case of the Cavs, particularly, I think, all of those factors, I would think, really help them. You know, LeBron doesn't have to play 45 minutes during the regular season, though he does play a lot. Um, and so you see the good coaching, good management, good stars who can lead on the court have the ability to take advantage of the weaknesses of their opponents in the playoffs much better. So the Cavs and the Warriors look a lot better and perform even better. And yeah, we want to get to the finals because of that. I also think that we need to acknowledge and appreciate that even the greatest teams aren't static. Like Kevin Love wasn't playing like this right. during this regular season or any previous time when he was with the Cavs. And if he's going to make 70% of his threes or whatever it's been during the Celtics series, then the Cavs are going to be trouble. And LeBron is playing incredibly well when he's surrounded, you know, Dave McMiniman on ESPN before this game three blip was saying this, the Cavs have the perfect roster for the NBA. It's the best roster that LeBron has ever had surrounded by shooters. Tristan Thompson is playing amazing and even independent from a conversation about what their effort was. Guys this great can still be greater or less great depending on the series or the game, and the Cavs are just playing at a yeah. really high level. The Warriors, I'm not sure just because I haven't watched that Spurs series because there's no suspense right. in yeah, what's going to happen. I heard there was no suspense. The se- that's the thing that I think is worrisome for the NBA. I don't know about an, a macro sense, but the like Saturday night game – between the Warriors and the Spurs, where Kawhi wasn't playing, I just had no interest <laughs> in tuning into that. And this is the Spurs team that was amazing well, during but the, the regular the year. The bigger macro problem with these playoffs is that all the series that didn't involve the Warriors or the Cavs also were duds. Um, James Harden's Game 6 airball was a disaster. John Wall's Game 7 for the Wizards in what had been a pretty entertaining series. Exactly was a disaster. The the Jazz against the Clippers game seven was terrible. So all the other series that could have provided some entertainment value, particularly in the second round, turned out to be awful. And, and I think that, that's, re, that's reinforced the image that these have been lousy playoffs. But it's also interesting that that has not necessarily resulted in a big change in ratings. I think right. the Charlotte Observer has pointed out that the ratings are pretty much the same as they were for last year, even in comparison to the you know the conference finals from last year, which, if you remember, the Western Conference Finals involved like people getting kicked in the penis. There, there was mm-hmm. that that series had everything. That was one of the great non-finals series in recent memory. I think which, the NBA, by the way, Warriors fans are convinced that that's why they lost is because of that ser- that mm-hmm. final series was so difficult that when they got except they then had a three one lead, which right. they lost. I remember that. I yes. want to remember that. I want to uh, transition from that thought 
to the idea that I've been hearing a lot during these playoffs. We've actually been hearing it all year since the Cavs won the finals. And that's that LeBron has nothing to lose, that his legacy is secure, that everyone where at last appreciates him. Who's been saying this? Where, 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 where is Who this narrative? People? people say this all the time, everywhere. Many people just say this. Poke your, poke your head out the door. I just want to plant my flag on the idea that any athlete anywhere at any time runs the risk of being embarrassed for life. And it could happen to LeBron. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's won all these championships now, the fact that his greatness is unquestioned. Michael Jordan became a meme for crying at a Hall of Fame ceremony years after he retired when that guy was like unimpeachably considered the best athlete in history. LeBron, they're out to get you, man. Don't rest. Don't relax. If you blow a lead, if you like miss a shot to lose a finals game, people are going to be laughing at you for the rest of your goddamn life. One other thing, don't play baseball. No. <laughs> Though, though LeBron would actually probably be good at it. I, I would watch a show that was just LeBron trying various sports. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the only sport I don't think he might be good at would be like Tour de France cycling. And that's, <laughs> that's not really his fault. I don't want to get back into the team handball conversation. That's for another day. Lightweight wrestling. I'm not sure he would be able to, to make weight for that. Uh, all right. Cavs Warriors. It's going to happen. Sorry, Marcus Smart. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Oklahoma City Thunder power forward Ennis Cantor has been on an international tour the last few weeks for his Ennis Cantor Light Foundation, which aims to provide food, shelter, and education to underprivileged children around the world. On Saturday, that trip was halted in Bucharest, Romania, where the 25-year-old Cantor, who was born in Switzerland to Turkish parents and is a Turkish citizen, was told his travel documents were not valid. Cantor, who has been extremely outspoken in his opposition to the regime of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, posted a video to Twitter while he was detained at the airport. Let's listen to that video now. What's up, world? Just wanted to say we are in Romania, and they said they canceled my passport by a Turkish embassy. You know, they've been holding us here for hours by these two police uh, you know, because the reason behind it is just, of course, my political views. And the guy who did it is, you know, the Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkish uh, Turkey. And, uh, you know, just you guys know him by, you know, he's attacked the people in uh, Washington. He's a bad, bad man. He's a dictator and he's the uh, Hitler of our century. So I'll uh, keep you posted, guys, but just pray for us and uh, I'll tell you guys what's going on. Appreciate it. The man is very, very outspoken. Uh, Subsequent to the posting of that video, Cantor, who was assisted by the NBA and the State Department during this ordeal, was allowed to travel on to London. Um, He 
made it back to the U.S. And he appeared on CBS This Morning on Monday where he talked about getting death threats every day. He says, I believe when I leave this set, when I leave this room, I'm going to keep getting death threats. But you know what? I stand by what I believe. Joining us now via Skype to talk about Cantor and the political situation in Turkey is Sean Singer. Sean is now a student at the MIT Sloan School of Management. But before that, he was the head of strategy at the Turkish Basketball Federation in Istanbul. He's joining us from Germany now. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Before we dive in, should probably provide a little bit more background for this story. Erdogan has extended what was originally announced as a temporary state of emergency in Turkey that gives him sweeping, unchecked powers to rule the country. According to the New York Times, the decrees have allowed Erdogan to jail more than 40,000 people accused of plotting a failed coup, fire or suspend more than 140,000 additional people, shut down about 1,500 civil groups, arrest at least 120 journalists, and close more than 150 news media outlets. Also last week, Erdogan looked on as his bodyguards attacked protesters in Washington, D.C., an act that as of yet has gone unpunished by U.S. authorities. Uh, Meanwhile, in Turkey, they've called on the U.S. ambassador there to explain why security personnel in Washington acted so unprofessionally towards the Turkish bodyguards as they were beating up protesters. Back to Enes Kanter, um, Sean, what can you tell us about how and why he became politically active and so outspoken? The tension between Enes Kanter and the Turkish government is really an outgrowth of the struggle between um, the followers of Fethullah Gulen, um, an exiled self-exiled cleric who resides in Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania, and leads an international um, movement of sympathizers and followers who the Turkish state has declared a terrorist group, um, particularly, and has stepped up its campaign against them in the aftermath of the July 15th coup attempt of last year, uh, for which it blames uh, Gulen and has repeatedly asked for his extradition from the United States. Um, so amidst all of this, um, you know, Enes Kanter, um, I think, was known as someone uh, very close to the Gulen movement. Uh, he was very close to a member of parliament in the AKP named Hakan Shukur, who's one of the greatest uh, Turkish soccer players of all time. Um But when the Gulen movement and the AKP fall out uh, after a a corruption probe in December of 2013, that's really when the gloves come off and kind of uh, a a struggle that was going on behind closed doors falls out into public. uh, And the uh, criticisms, I think, begin there. Now, how Uh, much does an athlete like Enes Kanter I mean, how much sway does he have with the Turkish public? Um, you know, we, over the last year, we've had athletes speak out here, but the stakes are a lot higher in a place like Turkey. And the ability for an athlete to have the kind of relationship you describe with members of parliament or members of the government uh, also is very different, radically different from what we're used to in the United States. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, there, as far as I know, there isn't a, a really long tradition of kind of outspoken Uh, critical athletes. That's not to say athletes don't play a role in politics. They do um, in the most recent um, referendum for the presidential system in Turkey. um, There were a number of uh, former athletes such as Ridvan Dilmen, who's a prominent uh, 
uh, soccer announcer and Arda Turan, who's probably the most famous um, soccer player in, in all of Turkey, he now plays for uh, Barcelona, supporting a yes vote for the campaign. And of course, the current president of the Turkish Basketball Federation is Hidayet Turkoglu, formerly of the Orlando Magic and Sacramento Kings and other teams. And he is also an advisor to President Erdogan. Um, so um, there certainly is this kind of uh, intermingling between sports and politics in Turkey. But I think you know, from an athlete's perspective, um, and you know, Enes Kanter is probably the most prominent critic of the government. Although, in the eyes of many Turks, I think his uh, criticisms are uh, compromised by um, you know their kind of selective nature. I think for Turks who support the government, obviously his association with the Gulen movement um, uh, kind of disqualifies him. Um, and for those on the more liberal side of the political spectrum who have been in opposition to the government going back to 2013 or 2010 or even before that, um, I, uh, you know, you see many people dismissing his criticisms as selective and opportunistic. So um, can you talk a little bit about just what does this mean overall from kind of the Turkish public's perspective? How much would Turkish media be covering this? How big of a story would this be? Because I know that, you know, for Cantor, the Turkish media last year, they published a story um, featuring a letter signed by Cantor's father disowning him. And I just kind of want to know, like, how much would the Turkish public be hearing about this story? And what, would, what do you think, how would this story be portrayed to them? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, there there are a few, in, you know, things to touch on here. The, there is the story that Ennis Counter confirmed that um, his father had sent a letter um, disowning him. Um, his father is, a, is an academic um, specializing in um, animal tissues um, who has since actually been suspended from his own university position as part of these uh, investigations going on um into sympathizers of the 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 Fethullah Gulen group, um, you, you know, in terms of his public profile in Turkey, um, I, I don't think he's someone who is extremely well respected or respected at all outside of the Gulen movement, and that's a reflection of the degree of polarization within Turkish society, um, and and that's only increased in recent years. So he was left off the roster for. Eurobasket, the big tournament in 2015. And that's not a decision that would be based on his athletic ability. He is one of the premier Turkish basketball players in the world, unquestionably. You mentioned uh, Turkoglu being an Erdogan advisor. Um, do you have any insight um, you can offer about what the dynamic is within the Turkish basketball team and whether Cantor has a place in it at all? Yeah, I, I think this is this issue is a bit more complex uh, than it might seem. Enes Cantor has actually only played for the, the men's national team, the senior national team once, and that was at the European Championships, the Eurobasket in 2011. Um, and since then was kind of repeatedly invited to um, come in the summer to play for the team, um, and he did not. Um, there were, you know, injuries and medical procedures. Um, the perception in the Turkish basketball community was that he was kind of finding ways to avoid coming to play. And I think in the United States, when LeBron James uh, says, you know, he's not going to play in the Rio Olympics, we understand. Um, but the symbolism and meaning of playing for the national team in Turkey, as in uh, many other countries, 
uh, is much greater. And so someone like Turkoglu, uh, as far as I can remember, only missed one national team competition uh, during his entire NBA career. Um, and and so th- there's actually a series of events that start in 2013 where NS is not playing with the national team for the Eurobasket in Slovenia, um, and Turkey is performing extremely poorly. Um, and after, uh, in the midst of a loss to uh, Greece, its third consecutive loss, he sends a tweet that's kind of the laughing tweet, like a ha 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 kind of thing, which he later explained was a reference to his in- inside joke with his brother. Uh, this was largely interpreted by everyone in Turkey as a slap in the face, uh, mocking the the failure of the national team. Um, the shit goes deep. I I should have uh, should have known that there was uh, something more complicated yeah, going on here. Twitter, right? Where where <laughs> where all great spats start. Um, so in 2014, there is a new national team coach uh, named Ergin Ataman, who um, spent the last several years with Galatasaray and led that club to significant successes. Uh, he tells the media he is ready to open a new page um, with Enes Kanter. Um, and over the course of the summer, uh, according to Ataman, reaches out to him several times, receives no response. Um, and as a result of that, leaves, uh, you know, Enes does not play for the national team in the 2014 uh, world FIBA World Cup, which was played in Spain. Um, so now the tensions are quite high, and in 2015, there, you know, the the subject comes up again, and uh, Ataman basically says, you know, a player who doesn't apologize to me for disrespecting me in such a way will not play for the national team. Um, and so that was the reason that was given by the head coach of the national team for why Ennis was not competing with Turkey at Eurobasket uh, in 2015. Now, obviously, there is a political dimension to this, um, whether or not someone who criticized the Turkish government as strongly as Ennis uh, was doing at the time could ever receive a spot on the national team. Uh, you know, that that seems unlikely. But there was another angle to this, which was that he has a long, complicated history with the Turkish national team. And with Turkey, it seems. He was born in Switzerland. He did play for Turkish national team, uh, youth teams, but he left to go play prep basketball in the United States. Uh, He was recruited by a bunch of universities. He wound up at Kentucky. Um, There was controversy over the fact that he had played four games for Fenerbahce professionally in Turkey before he had left. Um, And he really doesn't seem to have to have that kind of connection that a lot of athletes establish from a young age with their home country. Has that contributed to, along with his politics, this divisiveness between Conter and the Turkish Basketball Federation and the government? Um, I don't I don't I don't know that that's a that's a really tricky question without having certain conversations with people that I haven't had. But my sense is that, you know, based on what, um, you know, Enes Kanter says, you know, I mean, he portrays himself um, as someone with a great love and affection for his country. He certainly, you know, he tweets about being proud to be Turkish and those kinds of things. He's obviously, um, you know, you know, in his own way, he sees himself um, as attempting to make a contribution um, to the country. Um, and, uh, I, I, I think he does, you know, if he, if he didn't feel a strong connection to the place, I don't think he would be making the kinds of criticisms of the government that he is. What do you think of your overall takeaways are of the story and what this means for the political situation and for Cantor himself? 
Well, um, you know, it's been a couple of years, at least since Enes Kanter has actually been in Turkey. Um, right. If, if, so um, obviously uh, he won't be visiting again uh, in the near future. Um, uh, I think what we should see this as is an extension of a larger um, issue that's playing out right now. And that is, you know, the actions the Turkish government has taken in the past 11 months coming up on a year since the uh, coup attempt, although um, a lot of these trends proceed w- far before that. Um, you know, Enes Kanter is not the first um, Turkish person to have his passport canceled while traveling abroad. This has happened to uh, academics and to, to, to some diplomats and soldiers and teachers affiliated with the Gulen movement, as well as those who are in opposition to the government um, and from other uh, intellectual or, um, let's say, critical backgrounds. Um, so that's the context um, in which we should view this. It just happens to have happened to a very high profile um, professional athlete who, you know, is, is one of the, the, the star players of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Sean Singer is a student at MIT Sloan School of Management. He was before that the head of strategy at the Turkish Basketball Federation. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Sean. My pleasure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For our last segment this week, we're going to welcome in Andy Schwartz, who is America's favorite NCAA-hating economist. He's the proprietor of the website Sports Geekonomics. He is also a partner at the economic consulting firm OSKR, and he was a consultant on the O'Bannon versus NCAA case in which he helped make the case that colleges and universities were exploiting athletes by not paying them for the use of their likenesses. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, it's it's great to be on. And hate is such a strong word. <laughs> uh, I feel like it's appropriate, but that's just my outsider's view of things. You're you're a loving critic and a critical lover. Co- there you go. That's 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 much better. So we're gonna do the hang up and listen version of Shark Tank. When Mike Pesca did this on his show, The Gist, he called it Eel Bed. I'm going to call our version Banana Slug Terrarium. So welcome to the terrarium, Andy. I am the Canadian guy who's bald and kind of an asshole. I'm Mark Cuban, in which I'm incredibly critical and will say, come on, a lot. And I'm Barbara Corcoran. Who is is she? She's the real estate lady from New York. All right, real estate lady from New York. With the short hair. So, Andy, um, we have read... Your business plan, Um, the listeners don't know anything about it. All I've told them is that it's a plan to destroy the NCA amateurism model. I'm in. (laughs) Thank you, Barbara. All right, so take it away. Pitch us. Um, Well, so my idea is basically to put to the test the idea that what people who watch college sports care about most is that the athletes are not paid. 
And if that's true, then then my business will flop. But if you don't believe that, if you think that what they want to watch is great basketball played by colleges that have strong rivalries and color and pageantry and excellent halftime bands, uh, then I think this is a, a great business opportunity. And what makes it particularly good is that the would-be competitor, the other schools that are currently in Division One in the NCAA, are intentionally tying both their hands behind their back and refusing to compete back because the way we're going to get better talent is by paying more. And if amateurism matters, then they won't compete. So unlike most incumbent, I mean, most startups that want to disrupt an incumbent, think about like the USFL, you can get into a, a salary war over talent, but the incumbent has a bigger bank bankroll and can last outlast you and, and beat you at that game. And this is the one situation where um, there is a market opportunity and the incumbent says they will refuse to compete. All right. So we've all heard about the idea to pay players. That's not new. So what is new about your idea and how are you going to make it happen? Um, well, there are a few things I think that are new. One is that the league is forming to the extent to which it's anything more than an idea in my head, with the idea that um, all of the factors of production of the wonderfulness of college basketball at first and maybe college football eventually um, deserve to earn a fair rate of return. So when college football emerged, it emerged as a student-run thing, but very quickly schools took it over and ran it as a commercial business. Athletes were often employees of the university. They got paid, they got side jobs, and then at some point, uh, and you can point to the 1929 Carnegie Institute uh, report, there was this idea that that was bad and that the unbridled commerce of the whole thing had to be tamed by the imposition of amateurism. So um, this starts with a very different premise that that um, earning money is not inherently evil for schools, for television networks, or for athletes. And, and that whole shift in, in worldview then changes how uh, the league goes about its business. You've got a very specific target here for who might be receptive to this idea. You want to persuade the historically black colleges and universities to adopt this pay-for-play model. Why them? Um, well, so one of the things that, that might get me described as an NCAA hater is that I think that the NCAA is an economic cartel, by which I mean it's a group of firms that get together and fix prices. And, and they fix the price that they pay to college athletes. And what they do with that money is they then distribute it to their members, the schools, um, for their own uses, various uses. Some of them, they pay more to coaches, et cetera. But that distribution isn't equal. The HBCUs get something like, like the HBCU conferences get something like one-tenth of what a Power Five conference gets, maybe less. And so they are um, participating in, in the cartel, but they are not receiving the largesse of the cartel. And in cartel theory, when, when cartels break up, they break up over a dispute over the distribution of of the the monopoly profits. We saw that recently when the Power Five conferences began fighting. Look, we want autonomy. We with what, what they mean call autonomy. We want to be able to change the rules on our own, or else we're going to leave. And that's effectively how cartels work. If you don't give us more, then we're going to break up the cartel. Well, so the odd men out in in the current system, because generally speaking. 
athletes lose and most schools win, but the HBCUs are the, the least winning of them. And the recent stuff at, say, Grambling, where the football team went on strike over a moldy locker rooms is an example of that. They are not raking in cash the way like that even the commissioners of the Power Five conferences are, let alone the co- Power Five conferences themselves. So it seems like there are a lot of uh, barriers to making this happen in practice. Uh, one of them you alluded to already is trying to persuade schools that this is a good idea to defy the NCAA cartel. Another would be generating the money that would be needed to pay these players, getting a television deal, getting a marketing deal. Um, why don't you tell us what you think are the barriers as you see them in order of, um, you know, to start start with what the, the greatest potential obstacle for you is? Sure. And, and this is my real strength is, is saying why things won't work. Um, uh, the, um, you know, you, what, you, what do you need to make a successful sports league? You need fans. You need somebody to get the, get the games to the fans, whether that's in person or, or on, on some form of screen. TV is such an outdated term, but um, uh, remote viewing, let's call it. And, and then you need uh, the people who own the team. So in this case, that's the school. So I have to convince um, a bunch of schools that are – uh, themselves not rolling in cash, that cutting themselves off from a small amount of cash is actually a better way to make more, more money in the medium to long run. I have to convince a, a, some sort of, of broadcaster, whether it's a traditional sports network or, you know, a, I'll just throw out Amazon.com. Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, please call me. Um, and um, to broadcast this and that people will tune in because – HBCUs are uh, a school community that doesn't serve – well, that's not true – that focuses its its service on a minority community intentionally. That means that by itself, the mainstream, you know, predominantly white audience might not immediately have an affinity. But I, I think that that's overcomable. But that's, that's certainly a barrier at, at first. Why would somebody who went to – I'll pick on my own school – Stanford want to watch – an Alcorn State game. I really think that the challenge for this would be the fact that, like, you know, besides Howard and Grambling, there aren't that many recognizable HBCUs. And, you know, I've had friends who've gone to Prairie View, for example. And, you know, these schools are not very big. And, you know, I'm looking at your business plan, a lot of this seems to depend on private investors who would want some sort of return on on investment that you're saying that you would be able to obtain. And I'd just be very curious at how, like, how do you launch this? Where's the start point? And how is this, you know, how does this wind up working, especially most of all for the players, especially because if they're playing, let's say hypothetically in this, like they're playing against each other, right? Would they mm-hmm. be doing sort of non-conference games, like sort of your, like when they do the ACC versus Big Ten challenge or something like that, would there be those sort of, cha- would they be playing NCAA schools as well? Is that the point? Is that what we're saying? Well, certainly in in the in the world where the HBCU league exists the HBCU league would welcome all comers and would e- make efforts to schedule games against other schools other schools have indicated that just sort of generally they have no interest in playing a team if that team has compensated its players and certainly under NCA rules there there are restrictions on NCA schools playing non NCA schools 
I don't see why the HBC League would need to leave the NCAA, but I could see how the NCAA might say, if you're doing this, you're violating our rules and you're out. So, so it would be a, um, it would really be a choice on this, on the other schools as to whether they would play us. But my hunch is they would say no. The, Biggest hurdle to me, Andy, feels like it's the fact that the big five elite program schools have such a stranglehold on the market, the visibility that they offer to players. Because the only reason, if you ask players, the only reason to go to Duke or Kentucky, and John Calipari will admit this, the reason that kids are going to Kentucky is that it's high profile, high visibility, and I'm going to prepare you for the NBA. So you want to replicate that in a market environment that doesn't offer the visibility, at least initially. That strikes me as the biggest hurdle because you will need the HBCUs to buy into the idea that we have the ability to get this top tier high school talent to commit to doing this with all the benefits that might be implied. You'll make some money. You get to continue your education. If you don't make it onto an NBA roster immediately, you can stay in school and continue to play. No, every every startup sports league that faces an entrenched incumbent has that problem, and yet Steve Young went to the USFL. Um, so the issue is, how do you make it worth their while? In terms of getting that visibility, we're in a, a wonderful spot. And when I say we, I guess I should say, you know, th- this is a business plan. This is an idea. This is th- there's there's no there there yet. Um, Maybe after this this uh, podcast goes out, that the the world will beat a path to my door. But um, the 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 monopoly, such as it is, of the major networks is crumbling as the world cord cuts broadly or or small or, or or less so. It's not so much that people don't want sports content anymore; just how they get it and how um, you know top tier dial placement doesn't matter anymore. And so to the extent to which, um, like, you know, a, a, I, I already picked on Amazon, but a Google or a Netflix or, or any of the future sort of broad broadcast isn't even the right word, but the, the content delivery systems that are out there want live sports for the reasons that all networks want live sports, because they're, they're immediate and they're difficult to fast forward through. And they, they command, a more involved audience, um, which is good for all sorts of things. Um, you know, there are people out there looking for content and this is content looking for an audience. So I think it's a rare moment, you know, back when there were, I'm old enough, three channels, basically, um, having a network was a huge barrier to entry. I don't think that that is as much anymore. Convincing a network is, is, is a, a tricky thing, but it's not a, a economic barrier to entry. So I think, the biggest barrier as I see it is there have been guys like Brandon Jennings, Jeremy Tyler, Emmanuel Moutier, who are willing to forego playing college basketball to play abroad and get paid a little bit early. The issue is that you would be asking guys to potentially murder themselves because there's a chance that this thing, uh, like in China or in Italy or whatever, they know that if they sign up um, for this league that there's a well-established path, they'll be able to play, the NBA scouts will watch them. It seems like there's a risk with this league that 
They won't be able to play against any established competition. They might just be playing against each other. Scouts are still going to want to sign the best players, but there's just a huge risk here of getting involved in a legal imbroglio. And I don't know if anybody's going to want to, you know, take that take that plunge with you. Um, I think I agree with everything you said except for the legal part. I'm not sure what you're saying would be illegal about what we're doing. Not illegal. People. Not illegal. It's just like you were saying, um, the NCAA is not going to look kindly on schools that are paying players and would want to stay in the NCAA, right? Sure. So th- there's likely to be a um, a governance dispute within the NCAA, and I suspect, um, and certainly the, the schools would have to prepare for being ejected from the NCAA, either just for basketball or for all sports. Yes. And but, but so by legal imbroglio, I mean like it seems plausible to me that there would be a schedule of games and then maybe certain games wouldn't end up being played because places get cold feet or you just couldn't walk in with assurances of this is what our schedule is going to be. This is like the well-trod path of like how this all is going to play out. There's a certain, you know, amount of uncertainty that you would have to be willing to accept to sign on for this experiment. And let me jump in there and also say that before persuading the HBCU presidents, you probably need to also be in touch with AAU coaches and Sonny Vaccaro types that have taken a more uh, renegade path and have a kind of traditional opposition to to the NCA. You know, a LeVar, sure, I, a LeVar I, Ball, I even. Yeah, yeah no, uh, Sonny is actually a friend of mine, and um, he is probably the least optimistic person of all the people I've spoken to about the idea. So, so your point is well taken. Um, I think we need to get the NBA and or the NBPA involved as well, at least in uh, the sense of, of, of maybe not an endorsement, but a benign, friendly attitude towards the concept. I feel like one of the easiest ways for me to overcome a lot of this chicken and egg problem is if Chris Paul, as a president of the NBPA, or LeBron James, as a member of of the the council of elders that they have over there, were to come out and say, we think this is great. We're gonna talk about this league a lot. We're gonna go to games when we have, you know, to to bring the the imprimatur of the NBA star power and say you're gonna get exposure um, would go a long way towards cutting through a lot of that. Um, but yeah, if if it's, I mean, for one thing, this league should not be run by me. This league should be run by people within the HBCU community. I really just sort of have this idea and I want to let it fly. But if it's just me going into people's living rooms and trying to say, trust me, it's going to work. It's not going to work. You need Willis Reed, man. That would be good to have him actually come out hurt and and then get better. Who went to Grambling. All right. So, Andy, I am not going to invest in this idea, but that's mostly because I don't have any money. Mm -hmm. Um, So perhaps I'm not the greatest uh, banana slug to be on Banana Slug Terrarium. (laughs) But – if people are interested in beating down your door, what is the door that they should uh, beat down? All right. Well, I guess I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is A-N-D-Y-H-R-E. That's my first name. And then the letters H-R and E. Uh, I'm reachable if you use my first uh, 
first name, Andy, and then at oskr.com is my email. So shoot me a note. Um, if you're going to be critical, be nice. If you're going to be uh, <laughs> positive, be flattering. And, um, uh, you know, I, I engage people on the Internet, especially if it's civil all the time. I try to talk. And, um, uh, you know, I, I would really welcome people who want to get involved in any way. Andy Schwartz is with the economic consulting firm OSKR. In his spare time, he hatches schemes to destroy the NCAA. Andy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. It was great fun. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now it is time for After Balls. And I'm looking at the undefeated article on if the best HBCU basketball players of all time played five on five, who would win? Zelmo Beatty is in there. Zelmo went to Prairie View. I don't know if that was the friend of yours who went to Prairie View that you were alluding to, Jane. Yes. You're a personal friend of Zelmo Beatty's. (laughs) I am. I am. Let's go with that story. Um, Marcus Haynes is on here. Cleo Hill, Sam Jones, Earl Lloyd, Rick Mahorn, Earl Pearl, Monroe. Slick Watts. Ronald Flip Murray. That guy was... An NBA sensation. For Marvin an Webster. Extremely brief period of the time. Human, the human eraser, Marvin Webster. Willis Reed, Dick as Barnett. you mentioned. I Truck love Robinson. Dick Barnett because when he shot a jump shot, he would kick his feet up to his butt. Really? And so we would, we would imitate that, yes, on the playground. How is your butt? Does it still Sore. withstanding Sore. injury? Um, let's do Truck Robinson because he played for the New Orleans Jazz. I always want to rep the New Orleans uh, Jazz. Are you ready to provide us with an afterball, Jane? I a truck am. Robinson, if you will. I am. What is your I'm truck? looking forward to it. What is your truck Robinson? Well, I am going to discuss the greatest idea I've ever had, the all-pass interference offense. I have the time. I've got the motivation. i got the statistics. I've got an extremely annoyed Sports Illustrated article from last year that was complaining about it. I'm very excited. Should we open up the banana slug terrarium for you? Uh. Yes, you should open up the banana slug terrarium for me. Are you asking for an investment of hundreds of thousands of dollars for this idea? For 10% of your idea? I'm just asking for like three NFL coaches who aren't terrible people to buy in on this. All right, hit hit us. Okay, so I, I have this idea. It's the best idea I've ever had. I mean, okay, it's the second best idea besides getting married. It's getting married and then this idea. Getting married's not a new idea, though. People have done that before. It's true. So... I believe, you know, we have discussed this in the past, and I'm sure you both have, that, you know, people want to see great teams. That assumes that they are great teams that are playing whatever sport they're playing well. But that's not necessary to win. What about the teams that you just sort of forget about but also win championships? What about the teams that aren't actually all that great but still win 10 games? What about those teams? This leads to my idea. I believe that teams should use every possible advantage to win, even if that means that their games are unwatchable garbage. I believe that NFL teams should utilize the all-pass interference offense. As our listeners likely know, 
in the NFL, defensive pass interference is a spot of the foul penalty. Last year, by September 29th, there were 60 accepted defensive pass interference penalties, which is about 1.25 per game, which is a massive increase. According to Sports Illustrated's Greg Bedard, this meant it was time to have a conversation about defensive pass interference penalties and to stop them. I say, let's not do that. I say, what if you just relied your entire offense on defensive pass interference? That means that you've got a kind of okay quarterback, a kind of okay wide receiver, and over-aggressive cornerbacks, and every time that's pass interference. Basically, you just need Eli Manning and a short wide receiver. It's brilliant. So let's look at the numbers. In 2014, of the top 10 beneficiaries of defensive pass interference, seven made the playoffs. In 2013, your top four beneficiaries of defensive pass interference, Denver, Baltimore, New England, Indianapolis, three out of those four won their respective divisions. Last year, the Super Bowl champions received nearly 160 yards of defensive pass interference penalties. It's a winning strategy. Baltimore Ravens with Torrey Holt a couple of years ago were the defensive pass interference champions because they finished each year with more than 220 yards of defensive pass interference. This is a brilliant idea because it does not necessitate that anyone be good at anything. You just have to use this and win, which is really what sports is all about. But you're you're talking about in the hundreds of yards here and like some of these uh, quarterbacks are throwing for like 5,000 yards. How do we get from 200 yards to – in order for me to want to invest in this idea, I would want to see an offense get at least 2,500 yards of pass interference every year. We need to get, I need to see exponential growth. Well, I think we're starting to see it already just in terms of the number of penalties being called, which is increasing vastly. Uh, last year, there was a 47% increase in the number of defense like pass interference. I like to see 47%. Mm-hmm. There is a 47 Yeah. So for the on-track percentage for the entire season, based on September's numbers, which probably have changed, probably changed throughout the season, you were on track for a 37% increase over the entire season for last year's in, in terms of defensive pass interference numbers. Now, in order to get that kind of exponential growth, that means that coaches are going to need to buy in on this. I believe secretly that NFL coaches recognize that if you just chuck the ball, they're going to call defensive pass interference anyway, but no one will tell me that. So I just need one or two NFL coaches, probably in kind of desperate situations with a quarterback that's got like a cannon arm, but no touch and wide receivers who are okay, but not great. I just need like two of you to buy in on this. Just do it. Just throw Cut- the ball. If Jay Cutler knew about the all-pass interference offense, he never would have retired. Exactly. This is It's genius because it's perfect for if you've got a quarterback who's like, well, he can throw the ball really, really far. That's all you need. And it works. Brock Osweiler, come on down. Exactly. Like Brock Osweiler could become a the most hated Super Bowl champion in American history based purely on this offense. Imagine a Super Bowl that's going to be term- determined by a defensive pass interference penalty. Everyone else in America, angry. Me, happy. <laughs> Make Jane happy. Exactly. Stefan, what is your truck, Robinson? Well, someone noted on Twitter on Sunday that on this date in 1971, Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, was released. Charlie Pierce of Esquire replied, Mel Farr and Lem Barney on backing vocals. And I thought, what? Lem Barney and Mel Farr of the Detroit Lions? 
This, it turns out, is not a secret fact. It is, however, one that I didn't know. So here's the story. Marvin Gaye recorded for Motown Records and lived in Detroit. Lem Barney arrived in 1967 as a rookie with the Lions. He was a fan of Gaye's, wanted to meet him. As Barney told the alt-weekly Detroit Metro Times last year, one day during training camp in 1970, he went over to a golf course where he had heard that Motown people played. Barney asked if Gaye was playing, and a guy in the clubhouse said, no, but here's his address. Barney drove over in his 1967 Thunderbird, rang the doorbell. I stand back a minute, and as I'm about to ring it again, the door opens up, and it's Marvin. He says, hey, man, what's happening? And I said, my name is Len Barney. He said, not the guy with the Detroit Lions. And I said, yeah. And he said, man, you're too small to be playing football. Then he says, come on in. It's like we were there in the room. Gay loved football. He'd start going to Lions practices. He became good friends with Barney, who was a defensive back, and with his teammate Mel Farr, a running back. Sometimes they would hang out at Motown's recording studios. About this time, Obie Benson of the Four Tops was writing a song that would become What's Going On. Benson's fellow Tops didn't want to record a Vietnam protest song. Joan Baez passed on it, too, and Benson brought it to Gay, who wanted a group that he was managing to sing it. Benson demanded instead that Gay do it. He tinkered with the lyrics, channeling feelings inspired by his brother who had been in Vietnam, and he insisted that his friends Barney and Farr perform background vocals. Lem Barney could sing, Mel Farr couldn't. They were joined by Motown artists Bobby Rogers and LG and Kenny Stover, but it's Lem Barney who's trilling opens What's Going On. convinced that if you told me something happened from between 1967 to 1987, I would believe whatever it was. The party scene that you're listening to is, of course, a backdrop throughout the song. It's a homecoming party for a returning veteran who's mystified by what's going on in the country. Anti-war protests, race riots, social upheaval. The background vocals are tight. The contrast of the party to the mournful lyrics is genius. But what are the Detroit Lions and their friends actually saying? Fortunately, someone on YouTube has isolated the backing tracks from what's going on. So here's Lem Barney with the opening trilling again and the subsequent conversation. Hey, 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 hey. hey what's up, man? Hey, brother, what's up? Uh, this is hey, a big party, man. Yeah, I brother, can dig like, it. Stop it. Right on. What's hey, happening? man, what's your name? Sweet Davis. Hey, what's up, man? All right, so pretty basic 1970s cocktail party chatter, but let's keep listening. Let's do it all, baby. Super Bowl 14 and 0, baby. What do you say? That is definitely not Lem Barney. It could be Mel Farr. In any case, the party returns at the end of the song, and so does the football talk. Let's go all the way this year, baby. Come on, Freckles, let's split. Get the football now, baby. Football. Come on. Hey, Mark. Look here, man. Look here. That is Lem Barney saying, get the football now. But notice that they repeat the 14-0 and 0 Super Bowl business. That is a monumental gloat right there. The Lions went 7-6-1 in 1971. 46 years later, the only season with a zero in the team's record was 2008 when they lost every game. And, of course, the Detroit Lions have never played in the Super Bowl. It is the curse of what's going on. 
If you play it backwards, though, they <laughs> invent the all-pass interference offense. It's true. There is a postscript to the story, which is that Marvin Gaye wanted to try out for the Lions, and Lem Barney and Mel Farr persuaded the coach, Joe Schmidt, to let him. The players worked out with Gaye. He bulked up. He had his tryout Wait, in shorts you? and shoes. This should be a different afterball. It should be a different afterball, but I'm just going to throw it in here. No pads. Uh, Justin Tinsley of The Undefeated recounted that and the story of what's going on in 2015, and we will post the piece on the show page. Josh, what's your Truck Robinson? On Monday morning, the Twitter account Super 70s Sports posted a photo of Michael Jordan playing ping pong. While Larry Bird sat in the background looking kind of wasted as he lounged next to a child-sized basketball hoop. If you follow garbage history Twitter accounts, you'll not be surprised to learn that this photo is not from the 70s when Michael Jordan was still in high school, but was taken at the 92 Olympics in Barcelona where the dream team first got together. You'll also be appalled to learn that in the Twitter version of the photo, Ahmad Rashad has been cropped out. And we all know that Ahmad Rashad must be seen with Michael Jordan at all times or else he will self-destruct. Anyway, this image made me wonder how drunk Larry Bird was that day, failing to dig up any solid information on that account. I moved on to wanting to learn more about Michael Jordan's ping pong skills. And there is actually a surprising amount uh, that's been written about that. Any book that's been written about Michael Jordan has a story about MJ and ping pong. Let's start with Jimmy Black, his teammate at the University of North Carolina. His book, which I'm sure is on everyone's coffee table, Jimmy Black's Tales from the Tar Heels, Mm -hmm. has a subhead ping pong and cards uh, under which he writes, we had access to a pool table and a ping pong table in the basement of Granville Towers. Michael spent a lot of time hanging around both of these and challenging people. You really couldn't play a game of ping pong with him, not if you beat him. Jim Braddock said, I'd never seen a more fierce competitor. He would make you play him again and again until he beat you. I could beat him in ping pong sometimes, although he became the best on the team. And he always wanted to bet a Coke on the game. So Michael Jordan, what have we learned here? He likes to gamble and he's hyper competitive, really breaking new Mm -hmm. ground in the Michael Jordan mythology through the lens of ping pong. Moving on to Sam Smith's The Jordan Rules, famous uh, chronicle. Tales of his competitiveness are legendary around the Bulls. When former teammate Rod Higgins beat him in ping pong, when both were rookies in 1984, he went out and bought a ping pong table and became the best player on the team. Wright Thompson uh, wrote about MJ upon his 50th birthday for ESPN the magazine a couple years ago, provided additional insight into this period. Uh, The house that they played at was on Essex Drive. MJ has like a sort of Proustian Madeline moment remembering eating a McRib at this place and also has very strong memories of playing ping pong with Rod Higgins and with Charles Oakley. And this kind of going back to Jane's point about anything from the mid to late 60s to the mid to late 80s potentially being true, They would play for hours listening over and over again to the first Whitney Houston album. So just imagine (laughs) Michael Jordan eating a McRib, playing ping pong with Charles Oakley and listening to Whitney Houston. I see that might not be true, but it is true. Like I'm just that's just true. That's just what happened. (laughs) Moving on to David Halberstam's playing for keeps. One of our nation's leading chroniclers of Michael Jordan's ping pong career Halberstam writes, early on in his Chicago career, 
Uh, Jordan bought a ping pong table and placed in the rec room of his apartment. He was not a good ping pong player at first. He was cut from his high school's JV ping pong team, probably. He doesn't get into that. It enraged him that he always lost to Howard White, the Nike ambassador and his close friend. Charles Oakley was a good ping pong player, too, and it infuriated Jordan that both men could beat him on his home court. White was amused watching Oakley and Jordan, these two immense men, playing ping pong in so small a room with so low a ceiling. The rooms seemed filled with competitive energy. If you beat Jordan at ping pong, White learned, then you had to play again and again until finally he won. No mention of Whitney Houston, which makes me call into question David Halberstam's journalistic Mm -hmm. skills. May he rest in peace. Lacey Banks was a a beat writer for the Chicago Sun-Times um, and he wrote this very long story in 1999 about his like years of playing ping pong with Michael Jordan. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he mentions at the end that Jordan has like made it a mission seemingly second only to winning multiple NBA championships to beat this dude, uh, this Bulls beat writer in ping pong. And so he finally beats him like eight out of 10 games, Jordan does. And Banks writes about how he practiced even harder. He bought some new paddles. He begs him for a rematch. And Jordan, the hyper-competitive Jordan, refuses to play Lacey Banks and ping pong anymore. Please, Michael, I begged. Come on, man, let's play. Let's just play for fun. But for Jordan, it was no fun playing somebody he knew he could beat. I had offered him a challenge. He had accepted it and mastered it. Now it was time to work on others. If anybody sees Jordan... Tell him that at last count, I had 12 ping pong paddles of various styles and specialties. And if he wants to buy a couple cheap, I'll make him a really good deal. Poor Lacey Banks. Finally, back to the Dream Team days, 1992, Jack McCallum's book, The Dream Team. Good title. Finally, we will learn what was going on. The deep and abiding rivalries of the 1992 Dream Team around the ping pong table. In the early evening after golf, it might be ping pong time, which meant Jordan time, which meant life was miserable for everyone if the man lost. Any number of people, including me, can relate horror stories of playing ping pong against Jordan, who was very good but not great. Beatable on paper, but generally not in reality, since he wore almost everyone down with his relentless aggression and psych game. At one time, Steve Mills was playing him, even until Jordan put down his paddle, stared him in the eye, and announced... I will not let you go home and tell your friends you beat me. From that point on, his lacerating competitiveness simply rolled over Mills. One major exception was, we all know what's coming here, Christian Leitner, an outstanding player who repeatedly beat Jordan, at one point prompting the world's most famous athlete to throw his paddle in disgust and storm out of the room. Later, one of Jordan's buddies was tasked with finding a ping pong table in Barcelona so Jordan could set it up in his room and practice but it never came to pass. And this is the story about how Christian Leitner came to dominate the NBA, having psyched out Michael Jordan around the ping pong table and made the league his dominion. Here's the PS on my afterball, Stefan. Mm -hmm. Leitner's biggest rival, according to a Jack McCallum parenthetical, around the ping pong table, not Michael Jordan. Jordan. Not anyone else on the team. NBA commissioner David Stern. (laughs) The Mahatma? Could play ping pong? Was his toughest opponent by far. You know, I must say that in my experience in the world of nerd subculture, ping pong is a sport that 
geeks are very good at. It dovetails in Scrabble, in you know, Will Schwartz is an obsessive ping pong player, the New York Times crossword guy. Um, so there's this weird overlap, and you stand across the table from. You're saying you David think, David Stern is geeky. I'm saying David Stern is kind of a little bit of a dork, but never underestimate the ping pong abilities, the table tennis abilities of those who may not look super supremely athletic. We would love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes at iTunes.com slash slate podcast. And when you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. It helps. Become a fan on Facebook at Facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Thank you to Jane Coaston for coming on the show this week. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jane. Our producer, as always, is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty of Prairie View. And thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.